So good morning. <clears throat> As I mentioned yesterday, today I want to look at the, what we might call perhaps the contingency of consciousness. And the reason I want to explore this in the context of Nagarjuna is to, as it were, describe the basic sense of the world the world of experience that each of us undergoes moment to moment in terms of classic Buddhist ideas. And these, of course, were the ideas that Nagarjuna would have been deeply immersed in as a monk, as a writer, as a philosopher. And I think to be able to grasp some of the points he makes, some of the insights that he, he brings forth in his poems or his verses. It's very necessary, really, to try to put oneself into the world view that, broadly speaking, he would have been familiar with. Now, to do this, of course, I'm going to unpack it in a way that might bring in examples from contemporary science and so forth. But the key ideas, those we find through Nagarjuna's own writing and we find them very clearly in the early Pali texts, in the early Buddhist sutras, and they then run through the whole Abhidharma, the whole body of Buddhist thought, particularly in India and then subsequently in Tibet, in China. <clears throat> Now, the text I've given you, this page here, is headed with the word Nama Rupa. And I'm sure those of you who have read about, studied the basic teachings of Buddhism are familiar with the, the 12 links of conditional origination, I've called it here. Codependent origination, codependent emergence of how ignorance conditions impulses, impulses condition consciousness, consciousness conditions nama-rupa, nama-rupa conditions the six senses, and so on. And I'm not going to go through that point by point now, although we will be touching on various features of it as we go through the morning. But again, let's remember that the very term conditioned origination Paticca samutpada, praticca samutpada, is the very word Nagarjuna uses as a synonym for emptiness. We'll come back to this again and again, so don't worry too much about that yet, but I think this is the key point that we need to hold in mind, no matter, even if we don't understand it. Because in order to get at emptiness, we perhaps have the, um, the biggest clue, the biggest key, lies in an understanding of dependent origination. We cannot meaningfully think of these two terms as though they denote two quite different things, that they are entirely fused with one another. Now, the reason I've picked out Nama Rupa 
is because I feel it gives us perhaps the clearest window into a picture, a view of how the early Buddhist community, including Nagarjuna, would have seen the world. Now you might already be wondering, why have I not translated Nama Rupa? Why have I left it in the Sanskrit, whereas I've translated everything else? If you turn to the back of the page, I've given two citations, one from the, the Samaditi Sutta, which is the Discourse on Right View, as found in the Majjhima Nikaya, and then the Mahapadana Sutta, which is the great striving, I think, Sutta, um, in the Digha Nikaya, which is the longer discourses of the Buddha, both from the Pali Canon. And you can see here the difficulty translators have with this term Nama Rupa. In the first instance, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as mentality materiality, hyphenated, which doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an, uh, a term we would you know, immediately know what that meant. Maurice Walsh, in the translator of the, of the next sutta, has simply said mind and body for the same term, Nama Rupa. And for some reason also he's decided to hyphenate mind and body. Indicative of perhaps of the fact that Nama Rupa comes as a single term. Which we then break down, you see. We say materiality, mentality. Both translators realize there's no word and in there. So they both have recourse to hyphens. But I think the very, the, these two examples illustrate already, I think, a problem around how do we say this term in English? Nama Rupa. Now what is perhaps most peculiar in these translations is that neither of the translators choose the word that would be the most obvious translation of Nama, namely the English word name. <laughs> Nama in Sanskrit, name in English, have the same cognate, are cognates. In other words, they have the same uh, source in Proto-Indo-Aryan. Proto in other words, they stem from the same linguistic source. Nama and name, they're still very close. And yet neither translator wants to say name. Now the question is, why not? It's a puzzle. The Tibetan likewise doesn't fudge this. They don't use a word. They use the word Ming, Mingzuk in Tibetan. Ming is the common and garden Tibetan word for name. And yet somehow we're avoiding this in the translations. Let's first of all just think through what Nama Rupa might suggest. It seems to me there are two aspects of our experience whereby we can immediately identify something as me. The first is when somebody calls our name. Or if we see our name, for example, on a piece of paper. I put up, by the way, the list of home groups for this afternoon. And each of us is going to run through that list and at a certain point they'll see their name. <laughs> 
And when you see your name, you have a, a very peculiar recognition, oh, that's me. <laughs> whether it's Stephen or whether it's Marcia or whether it's James or whatever, you say, that, 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 you say that's me. And if somebody calls out to you, Stephen, you immediately, on hearing that, feel this peculiar sense that this is somehow denoting, depicting, referring to what we think of as me, my identity, my personality, my being. And then the other way whereby we come to know that this is me is through form, through rupa. So nama and rupa. Rupa, it doesn't mean body. It probably means something closer to materiality. But the trouble with the word rupa is that it it, it, it means what in English we could, try, we could say either as form or as matter. Rupa also refers to um, the objects of, phys- of, the, of, 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 the, of, of the sense of um, the eye. Vi- visual consciousness has as its object Rupa. And Rupa, though, is also the generic term for form and matter. So the word is used in two quite distinctive ways. It's the same word. So in other words, it's what we see. And that is then generically turned into a word for all kinds of um, objects of senses, what we sight, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, are all rupa. So matter doesn't quite work, form doesn't quite work, sight certainly doesn't work, but I think there's a clue here in the Rupa in terms of what we see because this is also a way whereby we come to that same recognition of, oh, that's me. For example, when we are walking down a street and we we pass by a reflective surface, a mirror, let's say, and we see ourselves and we immediately say, oh, there, there, oh, that, that, there I am, <laughs> walking by. Or every morning when we get up and brush our teeth or have a shave or whatever, we look at this creature in the, who's staring back at us and we know that to be me. Or if we see a photograph of ourselves, it's curious how we, as it were, hone in, often with a kind of odd curiosity. It doesn't often conform to what we think we look like, but nonetheless we identify that as me. Or if we see ourselves uh, on a piece of video footage or if we see ourselves on a screen in a closed circuit camera, let's say in a shop, a security thing. Again, we have this odd recognition. Although strangely, with the, with the video image, if we haven't seen ourselves on television or on video before, particularly if we're caught from an angle that we can't see ourselves, like from over the shoulder or behind, it sometimes comes as a shock when we recognize, oh my God, that was me. <laughs> But in other words, we have Nama Rupa, therefore, I would argue, is actually a way of talking about personality. It's a way of talking about character. It's a way of talking about identity.
Now we now know, in fact, that with Rupa, that each cell in our body, each hair on our head, each uh, flake of dried skin contains within it a unique DNA code that can only refer to me or to you. Our, our fingerprint, our thumbprint, our, any of the fingerprints, likewise, are unique to us. There is something about our identity that is actually embedded, rooted in our very flesh, in our very physical existence. So Rupa, from this point of view, in a way is not impersonal. It actually carries within it something unique about us. So that if we were killed, say, in a car crash and the car was burnt out, we could still trace infallibly that material remain to a particular person. So Rupa, therefore, we can perhaps translate as materiality but, or body, but somehow that misses it. It's this curious quality of identity that our body gives us. And Nama, this curious quality of identity, of name, that's not reducible to the body. It has something to do with our inner life, our sense, our inner sense, our very private sense of what it, what it feels like to be me. The Buddha then breaks down this nama, this inner sense of what it feels like to be me, in five different, what we might call, mental functions. And I think it's here that Bhikkhu Bodhi gets mentality. But mind, the second translation, is actually quite incorrect. It's way too vague. And it suggests consciousness or something. But as we can see from the first text, um, this is the Buddha speaking, he says, feeling, perception, volition, contact and attention, these are called mentality, or these are called nama. These are called name. So what I want to do is to try to break down and to tease out from each of these factors what that may have to say in terms of the construction of a sense of I, a sense of me. I first came across this list of Nama factors without knowing, actually, these early Pali texts. When I was studying um, uh, epistemology and psychology with Geshe Rabton, a uh, Tibetan Lama, we were introduced to these five factors as the, um, well, the Kundral Nga in Tibetan, which means the, the five always active functions of mind, the five always active or omnipresent, ever active. Kundro means always drawer going, 
They're always happening. And in, this comes from Asanga, who was a 4th century, 3rd, 4th century Indian Buddhist philosopher, usually associated with the Yogacara or Chittamatra school. Don't worry if, you don't, if you're not familiar with these words. It doesn't really matter. <coughs> and for Asanga, these five factors were the five fundamental constituents of consciousness. In other words, we, could not be, we cannot be conscious, we cannot meaningfully say, I'm conscious of something, without the presence or the co-presence of contact, feeling, discernment, intention, and attention. That is for a Sangha the sine qua non, the indispensable condition for us to be able to say, I'm conscious to be conscious of something. So we see here already that consciousness is not being thought of as some kind of singularity, some kind of single, perhaps even slightly mystical entity, mental entity, non-physical entity that knows things. But that knowing is constituted out of this fivefold functioning. So what I want to do now is to break down each one in turn and then at the end of the morning, I'd like to go through each of these in the form of a guided meditation. Some of you will be familiar with some of these, or perhaps all of these things, but this is not a particularly common way in which Buddhism is presented. Usually, we talk of the five aggregates or five skandhas, which are in a sense a much cruder way of covering this same ground. We can discuss this later if you wish. So let's start with contact. And again, at, at each step here, it's useful to try to, to actually try to enter into the picture of the world that's being built up here. In a way, rupa is already given. Rupa, or form, matter, refers to the, the, world, the world of the senses that is, in a sense, given to us in each moment. Visual objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. These, as it were, impact on this organism. Um, in some ways, perhaps, impact, I think, is even a better translation than contact. Impact, contact. Again, you see the word sparsa doesn't literally mean contact or impact. It actually means touch. It's, it's, the, it's the same word that's used for um, the, uh, to, to, to describe how the body senses the world through sparsa. In other words, my contact, my touch, if somebody rubs my forearm like, like this, that, is the ex that gives rise to sparsa, tactile sensation or touch. But then contact, like rupa, is extended to mean any kind of impact on the senses. So what we begin to pick up here is a kind of a way of, of breaking down into manageable parts, the seamless flow 
or the seamless fabric of any given moment of experience. So experience or consciousness is always in touch with something. Our experience is always an encounter. It's always, in the first instance, being impacted by something. This, not, this need not necessarily mean, actually, something we see, something we smell, something we taste, something we touch. It can also refer to what are called objects of mind. In other words, thoughts, emotions, feelings. These impact us too. These present themselves to us. And we then find ourselves in contact, experiencing the impact of an inner state let's say, a strong emotion, or even just a sort of a, a kind of a woozy thought. And we see this very much in meditation. We try to sort of focus on the breath. In other words, the impact of the air against the skin. But we find ourselves readily taken over by and far more interested in the impact of images, thoughts, pictures in the mind or feelings in the body. And that's what, in a way, is the very often where we spend a lot of our time, actually, in that zone of encounter with what, as it were, rises up within us. But the point of sparsa, or contact, is that this, as it were, activates the organ of the sense. The visual, let's give the example of something we see, a patch of green color out there, the light impacts on the retina, as we would say now, generates a series of signals up the optic nerve, and at that point we have contact. And then there's the possibility, in fact the inevitability almost, of, of some kind of consciousness. So the first step is contact. And again, it's slightly dangerous to think of this as one thing leading to another, although that's often how it's described. You might already have spotted, if we go back to the 12 links, it says contact conditions feeling. And what we find, it's quite curious actually, once we find, we start to pick these terms apart, we find that they reappear in all manner of other contexts. They're like the kind of key terms that we'll constantly find in different um, texts and discourses. But in terms of Asanga's idea of these things always being present in any moment of consciousness, we are always in contact. We're always in a state of encounter. And we're always, going on to the second one, in an experience that feels a certain way. Now, feeling, Vedana, has, um, is again a confusing term. It doesn't correspond exactly to what we mean in English by feeling. We, 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 we would say, for example, that, that love is a feeling. But love is not Vedana. Feeling refers quite narrowly, in a sense, to, as the definition here gives it, the experience of pleasure, pain, or indifference. Now this we can perhaps imagine more usefully as a kind of spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is agony, the most horrible pain we can imagine. 
And on the other end of the spectrum is ecstasy, or the most wonderful, pleasant thing we can imagine. And according to this, I, this, this view, at any moment of consciousness, we will be able to locate ourselves somewhere within that spectrum. Perhaps for a lot of the time, we're in the kind of mid-zone, which is neither particularly pleasurable, neither particularly painful, what might be called a kind of indifference. But nonetheless, the point that's being made is that experience, or consciousness, let's say, is always colored with a kind of emotive tone. In other words, our experience is never just a meaningless blank. Even if it's an indifference, a kind of a neutrality, that still registers and then perhaps emerges into consciousness as a feeling of boredom, uh, a feeling that nothing's happening, a feeling of irritation. And all of this refers back to the, this emotive or hedonic tone. So there's a kind of tonality in experience. It, the, when the Buddha taught the, the, uh, the practice of mindfulness, he starts with uh, the body, rupa, although it's not, the word is not rupa, the physical sensations, which in many ways are simply the moment of contact. Contact could also perhaps be translated as sensation, if you like. And then the practice of the second practice of mindfulness moves from sensation into feeling, feeling tone. And then from feeling tone, we can then start paying attention to mental events. But feeling is considered to be very crucial. And it's particularly crucial in, say, the Twelve Links, or in terms of the Buddhist practice of, uh, of liberation, in that it's at the edge of that emotive tone, the feeling of pleasure, the feeling of pain, the feeling of, of indifference, that the process of reactivity then kicks in. In other words, the contact and the feeling are themselves completely morally neutral whether we feel pleasure, whether we feel pain, whether the impact is strong, whether the impact is light. That is simply the givenness of our experience. How we respond to that, how we react to that, is then what precipitates us into a moral, a spiritual world. One in which we are driven by our likes, our dislikes, our longings, our fears and so on and so forth. And what we react to in the first instance is that feeling tone. I mean, this is quite clear in, in, in you know, if somebody, um, uh, you know, hits us or uh, does something very uh, unpleasant to us, then we immediately react. We immediately sh try to def shy away from that. We immediately defend ourselves. In meditation, for example, we're operating at a much subtler level. We get, a, 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 let's say, a rather warm, glowy kind of idea or image or thought comes into mind, and that evokes a, a rather pleasant sense. And we can sometimes see ourselves, as it were, hovering on that edge. You know, should I or shouldn't I? Should I indulge this feeling? Should I play this little scenario out a little bit further? 
Or should I just see it for what it is, as a pleasant feeling, and just watch it pass away? That is the, the, the edge in which we have the choice, we have the freedom, either to remain in that spacious attention, non-judgmentally, just being with what is, or getting carried away on the roller coaster of our inner monologue, our fantasies, our desires, our fears, etc., etc. So feeling is very much the, the starting point in which we have the freedom either to remain in that space or to give in to our habitual patterns of behavior. So we have two of these things so far. We have the contact or the impact, the sensation, that primacy of encounter that is constitutive of consciousness, and then its emotive tone, its coloring, its inner sense that is peculiar to our experience of that thing. And then we get samya, or sanya in, in Pali, which I'm translating here as discernment, it could, it usually is translated actually as perception. It's sometimes translated as perception slash ideation. Again, the fact that different translators have different terms for this is all highly suggestive of how we don't in fact have a single English word that captures what's meant here. If we look at the word itself, in, uh, I've given the Sanskrit uh, the Pali is slightly different, but it's the same, uh, it means the same. Sangya, Zhnya is the, is the root to know. And Sang, some, means uh, together. So Sangya is that knowing that brings things together, that I, and I would say organizes, um, makes sense of, um, gives meaning to. And this, of course, extends from the primacy of what is just given. In other words, we walk into this room and we experience a room. We look ahead and we immediately see a Buddha on a drum, in this case. This is a drum, right? <laughs> we see flowers, we see a Venetian blind, uh, we see a hat on a chair. And it's not as though we come into the room and are presented with a bunch of visual data and then we have to sort of figure out that that's a Buddha and that's a hat. Hat and Buddha are in our face. They're there. They're given. We know what they are. <coughs> and then at the other end of that spectrum we have the actual conscious process of, of thinking and reflecting and conceptualizing and analyzing and differentiating in which we might say in a, say, a dark room, for example, we say, well, what is that thing over there? And we have to look at it very carefully before we can say, oh, that's what it is. It's a hat or whatever. So sanya, um, again, the, the te technical de definition which comes from a sangha, that which identifies the object to be this as opposed to that by means of differentiation. So sanya has a lot to do, in fact, essentially to do, with differentiation. 
I think in, in, in a more kind of uh, idiomatic English, Sanya has to do with the fact that the world that presents itself to us is laden with meanings. It makes sense. And again, this is so obvious that we might wonder why we have to even say that. But the reason it's obvious is precisely because that system of differentiation, that system of making sense of things, is so deeply loaded into our consciousness that we don't even notice it anymore. Some very good examples to illustrate this, or to illustrate the fact that what we see is actually not necessarily obvious, is to look at some of the work that's been done, um, or studies that have been done on people who were born blind, and 20, 30, sometimes 40 years later, were able to have a medical operation that restored their sight. If you want some examples of this, there's some very good ones in Oliver Sacks' book, um, An Anthropologist on Mars. Now, common sense would suggest that after such an operation, let's say a person called Fred who's been blind from birth has an operation, he's lying on his hospital bed, the bandages are about to be taken off, the bandages are removed, and then, if the operation has been a success, Fred will then say, wow, I can see, it's amazing. <laughs> and, he, and we imagine Fred seeing a room and seeing maybe Fred's wife or kids or Fred's dog and thinking, at last, I can share the visual world with other people. But actually, it's not like that. When Fred opens his eyes, he encounters a bewildering and even terrifying array of chaotic shapes and colors that make no sense whatsoever, completely meaningless. And there are cases, and if you read the Sachs book, you'll, you'll get this told in some detail, people actually some subsequently even regret having had the operation. It renders the world not clearer, but more confusing. Things that we take totally for granted, like a sense of perspective and distance, is actually something we've learned. Something that has, we've, it has, actually, of course, actually become somewhat hardwired into the actual neural structures of the brain. So that, although what is actually given when I look out at that wall, for example, um, is just a series of shapes and colors. Uh, shapes, color, yeah, shape, shape, shapes and colors primarily. But I also know, without having to think, that that door is about 20 foot away, that there's a tree in the background that's about 100 yards away. It's all arranged in perspectival distance. It's all organized. It's all, uh, and I know that there's a right angle there, that that wall goes down there, and then there's the lighter color, which indicates something which is a flat surface in front of me. A person who's had this operation, for example, can, has an extraordinarily difficult time, even after some years after the operation, of figuring out how to walk up a flight of stairs. They can't differentiate the flat from the vertical. And many of them will still resort to their walking stick to get up the flight of stairs. It's much easier for them. It's very difficult to figure out 
if you've had to learn later in life, when the neural networks have not been, as it were, uh, set in place at, say, at, at a younger age, you know, how, which, how do I know which bit is flat and which bit is vertical? It's not obvious. There's bizarre stories of people who've um, had to get to know their dogs and cats. They can make out all of the, um, you know, the, the, let's say it's a white and black dog. They can, they can work out the black bits and the white bits and the tail and the top and the head and all of this stuff, but they cannot get dog. They just get the data and no dog. So they have to then shut their eyes and stroke the dog, and then they get dog. Then dog is known. So discernment here, and again, I'm obviously using examples that would not have been familiar to you know, ancient Buddhists. But I feel that these examples actually illustrate this very well, that the world that we um, perceive and the world that we feel, as it were, comes to us already intelligible is actually something that we have learned to experience in this way. Uh, I just said, if I spoke in Tibetan, you wouldn't understand, right? <laughs> if I'm speaking in English, all of these noises that are coming out of my mouth all make sense. We don't have to say, you know, what, what, what's he saying? Sometimes when I use a word like hedonic, we might say, what the hell does that mean? But basically what I say, you, what, you, just may, you know what it means. Who does it, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. Hedonic, it's, well, it's, you know what hedonism is, hedonism. It's, it's, it's a philosophy that believes that the purpose of life is the pursuit of pleasure. And I think the Greek word is either pleasure or feeling or something. So it's, a, it's, the, fe it's the feeling term, the hedonic term. It's a rather smart-ass term. It's not really <laughs> a term. But the, the, the point is, for example, also, if you look at a page, if you don't know Chinese and you look at a page of Chinese text, it's completely meaningless to you. It might look, it might look nice. You might want to pin it on your wall as an art object. <laughs> or stick it above your altar, if, it, if you think it's a Buddhist text. <laughs> but the meaning does not jump off the page, whereas if it's in English, like the text I've given you, the meaning, ignorance, conditions, impulses, for example, it seems to come at you. That we've learned this, and anyone who's spent any time learning another language, for example, knows this process. It starts out very artificial having to remember what each noise means. And then at a certain magical point, you hear what the person is saying in Spanish or French or Tibetan or Chinese or whatever it is. So this is all due to the capacity called sanya, perception, discernment, however we translate it. And this is, for a sangha, one of the, the givens of consciousness. And in fact, discernment is also the foundation for what subsequently develops into intelligence. You see, you have samnya, means the jnya, the knowing that brings things together, and then you have prasnya, same jnya, same knowing. Pra means something like superior, you know, high, high, high level, 
knowing. But actually it is a refinement of the capacity of discernment. Prajna, for all of D.T. Suzuki's insistence that it's a kind of mystical intuition, um, is defined in, in the classical text as, as a kind of differentiation, a kind of discernment, a kind of being able to, to see things clearly. In other words, to be able to differentiate one feature of experience from another. So to, to, to focus one's intelligence on, say, impermanence means to actually to differentiate from the flow of experience that quality of change, that quality of shifting, moving, not remaining the same. That's something we can pay attention to, can discern, and that discerning can then actually become an intelligence which can become a wisdom. And then we have intention. And again, I'm running through these things very fast. It's, it's very sketchy, but hopefully a, a picture might emerge at the end. Intention, chetana, um, this I think is translators do at least agree on this, although sometimes they translate it as volition. But chetana is the term, is the answer the Buddha gave to the question, what is karma? He, he, the, the, the classic answer is karma is chetana. Karma is intention. And intention, as defined here, is that which moves the mind to the object. So, in terms of intention being a fundamental constituent of consciousness, we have to perhaps think that through a little more clearly to recognize that mind is always in action. It's always in motion. It's never, it's, ne it's never still. It's always doing something. So not only is it encountering, not only is it feeling, not only is it discerning, making sense, but it's also either on the verge of or engaged in an act. Even if that act is to stop doing anything and be still and watch my breath. That when we choose to do that, when we commit ourselves to just notice, that is an intention, that is a movement of the mind. It is an act. It is karma. It is an act. So intention is act. And in the broader sense, what this, I think, means is that the world does not present itself to us as just a set of, of sensations, of feelings, and information. In other words, an intelligible world. But the world always presents itself to us as an, an arena of possibilities, as an arena for action. The world is always a place in which we are challenged or called upon or invited to act. But the mind is always thinking about, worrying about, planning, plotting, remembering, very much in order to negotiate its way through the world. First to make decisions in our minds, which then become vocal acts, speech, or physical acts. 
Or it could be that we choose to live a very introverted, very contemplative life, but that's still just as much an act. It's still responding to the givenness of the world in a way in which we choose to, in this case, look inward, look into the nature of our mind, for example, watch our breath. It's just as much an act as it would be to go out into the city and help the, the poor or to go and, you know, play a game of basketball or something. So mind consciousness is always in a state of motion. It's always figuring out what to do. The world presents endless possibilities. And then finally, attention, manasikara. This is that which has this is that capacity of consciousness to be able to settle on an object, to be able to focus on an object, to be able to hold and stabilize mind, awareness, on a given point. And this is different from the moving of the mind. The mind will perhaps say, okay, I'm going to watch the breath, or come back to the breath. That's the intention. The moment we then are back again with the breath, the sensation of breathing, we can then hold it, we can sustain it, we can sustain that attention for more than a few moments. And attention is eventually what becomes uh, samadhi and jhana. It's that capacity to be with one thing at a time, to rest on a particular project, particular point, particular feeling, and to stay there. Admittedly, we may not be able to stay there very long. The mind might be pushed off to do something else. And we can see with these different factors, particularly intention, um, feeling, discernment, there's an ongoing change in these conditions all the time. Every moment, something else is coming up. Whether it's a vi an object that's being presented to the senses, whether it's a feeling that we're having inside ourselves, whether it's something we've suddenly recognized and seen in the world, we've discerned, whether it's a choice we're about to make. And remember, intention need not be vol volitional. It doesn't necessarily have to be a conscious choice. A lot of our acts are actually operating below the level of conscious volition. We're just going around doing things. Periodically, we make a conscious choice. But much of our time, like when we're eating, for example, we're just, we're just sort of shoveling the stuff down motor function is just doing that. If we're interested in things like meditation, attention is crucial. That's actually the function we, we, we cultivate for a great deal of the time. Learning to stabilize our attention on a particular point. But of course it's equally as necessary in any kind of sustained activity. If we're writing something or if we are watching a movie, for example, we're still having to keep the mind focused on a single point and to resist the temptation to be distracted by something else, to bring our attention back. Now these five functions, and again if you've got questions about them we have plenty of time uh, after the break at 11 to try to fill this picture out even more clearly. These five functions 
are, as it were, the constituents of consciousness, that which enables consciousness to happen. But consciousness cannot be reduced to any one of them. This is the point being made. Um, Geshe Rabton illustrated the relationship between these five functions and consciousness as similar to the relationship between the parts of a hand and a hand. So a hand is made up of bone and sinew and nerves and blood, veins, arteries and so on, skin, nails, and yet the hand is not reducible to any of those things. The hand is not equal to the sum of its parts, in other words. Consciousness, therefore, is the whole, W-H-O-L-E, of which contact, feeling, discernment, intention and attention, at least, are the parts. So just as, um, I mean, a hand has all of these bits, but none of the bits is able to pick up this glass of water and enable me to drink, but the hand can do that. So in other words, consciousness has a capacity to know, a capacity to be conscious of what's happening in a way that none of the individual parts can. Now what this, I think, points to is, is, a, is a complex notion of what is the nature of mind or consciousness. It's not reducible to some kind of mystical knowing. But knowing, in these early Buddhist texts, is always understood to be the cooperative function of encounter, feeling, discernment, intention, attention. The... Um, the classical source for this um, is found in these two texts that I've printed for you here, the, the Majjhima text and the Diga text. Uh, some of you may have noticed, but what is striking about the Diga Nikaya text is um, in, uh, uh, in the middle of the page, just below what is bracketed as section 32, uh, it says, and then the Bodhisattva Vipassi thought, with what being present does consciousness occur? What conditions consciousness? And then, as a result of the wisdom born of profound consideration, the realization dawned on him, mind and body, Nama Rupa conditions consciousness. Now that's, of course, the complete inverse the opposite of what we're used to hearing, that consciousness conditions Nama Rupa, as found in the Majjhima text and in most of the texts. But here we have an example of, of actual interdependence. I mean, interdependence is one of these words that's thrown around in Buddhism, but actually it's a fairly late idea. It comes in Madhyamaka, it comes in Avatamsaka literature, but the early Buddhist texts don't actually speak of interdependence, one th each thing conditioning the other. That's fairly rare. But here we do in fact have a very clear and very early source that points to the interdependence of Nama Rupa and Vijnana. 
It's important to note that in the whole of the Pali Canon, consciousness or mind, citta, is never included amongst nama, amongst the name factors. It's, you never find it. Yet in, in many popular presentations of the Twelve Links, and even in this translation of, of Nama Rupa as mind and body, you would think that mind, consciousness, that's more or less the same. Mind and body is that Nama Rupa's shorthand for mind and body. But this is not correct. It's shorthand for certain core mental functions and our physicality, independence upon which consciousness then emerges. Now, curiously, Nagarjuna, um, in one of the pieces I'm going, to work, I'm going to read out tonight, is also aware of this Diganikaya text. He also says in, I think, chapter 26, that um, consciousness, uh, sorry, that, that Nama Rupa gives rise to consciousness. Now again, one might think that this is getting a little bit um, academic, but I think it's a crucial point. And even though we've said all this, that does not resolve what in, um, in, modern, in, in contemporary uh, neuroscience and cognitive science, what is known as the binding problem. How all of these different inputs we get from the senses, how these different mental functions that compute and deal and organize and make sense of this data cohere in the experience of sitting in this room listening to a lecture. The curious thing about consciousness is that we, the consciousness is an integrated experience. In other words, it seems to be a seamless, intelligible whole which is comprised out of myriad data being put in at any given moment. And in fact, uh, again, from neuroscience, we, it's fairly incontrovertible, I think, now that it takes half a second for the brain to actually compute, as it were, that incoming data. So we're always half a second late. <laughs> in other words, half a second from when let's say, sense data impacted on the senses, sense signals to the brain, and the brain then organizes that as a coherent, meaningful, integral whole. That's consciousness. Consciousness is the sense of that totality. And it's not just a totality composed of lots of different bits. It's the integrated experience of having dinner with an aunt in a bistro in Madrid or of stroking a cat while looking at the sky. A completely um, harmonious and organized, intelligible, multifunctional unity. That's what distinguishes consciousness from contact or feeling or discernment or intention, attention. All of those things are necessary. But none of them adds up or is equivalent to this curious thing called consciousness. And again, consciousness is so obvious to us that it takes quite a, uh, a kind of intellectual or imaginative step back to actually be surprised by the fact that it's happening. 
It's, a, it's an extraordinary thing that we are conscious. And it's an extraordinarily complex as to how it comes about. And certainly um, the scientific community recognizes itself to be only on the very edge of having any clue as to how this happens. This is the big question on the cutting edge, as it were, of the sciences. You know, what the hell is this consciousness? And Buddhists often say, oh, consciousness, that's easy. That's, <laughs> that's uh, clear knowing awareness, uh, sorted, you know. <coughs> but I think the Buddhist analysis of consciousness, at least if we get back into these, these kind of basic texts, likewise shows the, the problem, the binding problem. How does this all operate together? How does it all hold together? So just one more run through this so that we get some uh, sense. There's the physical world that impacts upon the senses. There's also the stored inner world of memory, uh, of our experience that we can remember, uh, and our emotional, our, our psychological life, that all of that, as it were, impacts on the organism at any given moment. That contact immediately is felt in a particular way, somewhere along the spectrum between agony and ecstasy. That encounter is also immediately intelligible as something. And if it's not intelligible as something, it then becomes a question that we try to sort out. You know, what the hell is that? Until we've got some until we've organized it conceptually. This experience, this consciousness, is always on the threshold or in the process of acting, of doing something. It's always in motion, it's always engaged. It's always, as it were, alive to the possibilities that are present in any given situation. And this consciousness is always coming to rest on something, even if it's only for a, a few nanoseconds. Our interest is drawn. Something will, as it were, stand out from all of this array of data and be the thing that we get interested in. You know, the, the, the fantasy or the funny smell coming out of the kitchen or whatever it is. And that's our tension. So that's a sketch um, of Nama Rupa Vijnana. And I'd suggest now we have a break till 11.15 and we'll come back and then we'll discuss any questions you have, any comments you have um, in such a way that this can perhaps be enriched a bit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.